Brandon, it's good to have you back in the seats. The only difference I can tell is the hair is a lot shorter, so looking good, high and tight. We, we had, we had uh, Todd and Jen's son has gone on a new nap cycle, so we get them back this year, which is exciting. And if you, if you are new, that one of your New Year's resolutions is to finally get back to church, welcome. My name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at Lighthouse, and we're so grateful that you're here. Um, we are a very loving community. We just want to be family. So if you just got a little overly familyed right now, I apologize, but get used to it. That's who we are. All right. And just out of curiosity, it's a new year. It's the time that we typically do New Year's resolutions. Who here has a resolution for this year? Anyone? A couple of you, a few thinking about it. My resolution this year was not to make any resolutions that I would not keep. And so far I'm doing pretty good keeping that one. So I'm, 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 I'm feeling good about it. It's not that I have anything against resolutions. It's not that I have anything against making choices that, that lead to long-term transformation. The problem that I find with resolutions at this time of year is I think that a lot of times they suffer from overcorrection syndrome. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a real thing, but it, it's, it's a thing we're going to talk about today. It, it, think about like the kid who's learning to ride a bike, right? They, they're just, they're just doing this and they sense themselves going too much towards a tree. So they jerk the handlebar, overcorrect and slam into a parked car. Right. In the same way, we feel ourselves sliding in a direction. We don't like it. This time of year, we kind of assess where am I at? Oh, I feel like I'm sliding this way. Jerk the handlebars. And it's so abrupt that we end up falling over the other way. So, man, I don't feel like I've been spending any time with God. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up an hour and a half earlier every morning and I'm going to spend an hour and a half on my knees. Works fabulously the first day. Then comes day two, you stayed up the regular time watching your Netflix, and, and we watched, Kathy and I started watching this show, oh no, I'm not going to even say it. It's, it, it, it's called Instant Hotel, they're, there's, they're awful people, it, it's, they're just terrible human beings, they're like, why are we watching these people being so mean to one another? It's not worth it. Make a resolution not to watch that show. Why did I even say that? But you stay up late one night, so the next morning you don't wake up on time and now you feel guilty. The resolution has done what it typically does, right? It makes you feel guilty, which is exactly what you wanted to do this time of year. Or you found a few extra pounds over the holiday season. Maybe you picked up some of what Cherie and Ed were dropping behind them as they've been losing them. And you said, this year I resolve not to eat sugar at all and to go to the gym at least five times a week. There's a reason why the gym is crazy right now. But you don't need to worry, those of you who are regulars, because it will go back to your normal empty gym in about a month and a half. So you're good. Just wait it out. They will forget about it. Again, I have no issue with making decisions that lead to long-term transformation because that's what we're about. The problem is that resolutions often don't lead to that because they're so abrupt and they're so big that it ends up just, we end up falling over the other way. And so what we want to do is experience long-term transformation. And that happens through a long obedience in the same direction. By making small incremental changes that ultimately lead to the kind of fruit we want to see. And that happens personally. Instead of ordering soda at lunch, you order water. And you begin to watch as that makes a difference, not over the course of a couple of days. I have a, I have a friend who, here's, here's the way that he loses weight. 
he stops eating for a month and only drinks water for a month. He drops a lot of weight, but he gains it back immediately when he starts going back and eating fast food right after he's done with that month. And so he yo-yos back and forth. Not the healthiest thing in the world, right? We're not looking for instantaneous. We're looking for a long-term transformation. That's important as individuals. It's also important as a church. Because in years past, what I found that we were doing is that we would every year, as we looked at, it's the beginning of the year, let's assess where we're at, let's assess where we're going, and come up with kind of the focus for this year. And every year we would come up with a different focus. We're going to be rooted this year. We're going to look inside and just really root ourselves down in the bedrock of Christ. This year we're branching out. We're going to look beyond the walls of this place. This year we're pruning because there's way too many things going on. So we need to prune back. All of those are good, but we're just doing this down the street because as we start moving in one direction, by the end of the year, the calendar year ends just as we're beginning to see fruit produced. And now we jerk the handlebars and go the opposite direction, forgetting about what we've been doing. And we don't see that long obedience. And so a couple years ago, when God very clearly gave us the direction for our church, we just said, this is what we're going to do year after year after year. We're going to focus on this. And like a screw that we just keep turning, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And each year we just try to crank that screw of our commitment to this thing deeper and anchor ourselves in it. So this year, like yet last year and the year before, this is our big rock. This is what we are about as a church. Can we throw that up on the board? Go ahead and read this with me. Lighthouse Community Church is committed to making disciples who love God, love one another, and love your neighbor. Now, some of you are going, that font is so tiny that I am resolving to go and get glasses this year, right? This is more than just a focus for a year or two. This is, we believe, the purpose for which God has commissioned our church. And once a person said, well, is this somehow different from what other churches are commissioned to? No. I hope that every church grabs hold of this. We just want to be overt in identifying what it is we have been called to do and then be intentional about doing it because a purpose statement like this does a few things for us. One, it gives us a lens through which to look at everything that we could do. There are a ton of things we could give ourselves to and run at. It helps us to look at everything we do and assess, will this help or hinder us from accomplishing what we were commissioned to do, namely to make disciples? Secondly, it helps every single one of our ministries pull in the same direction from our families' ministries across the street with our kids to our small groups, our life groups, to the young adults, to the missions and outreach of our church, everything, including our teaching, everything runs itself through this lens and say, are we on board? Are we pulling together? It also gives us an ability both as a church leadership as well as church members and people who call Lighthouse home. It gives all of us a sense of accountability that we can ask ourselves, am I really in? So as leaders, we can look at what we're doing and we can look at the fruit it's producing and saying, are we accomplishing what God has commissioned us to do? If not, what things do we need to address in order to do this more faithfully? 
And as members, as people who call Lighthouse home, you have the ability to look at this and both say, hey, are they helping me do this? But secondly, and this is really important, this is something we're going to stress throughout the course of this month. It gives you an ability to say, hey, if this is what this church is about, making disciples, then am I on board with this? Am I willing to get up out of my seat and get onto the field and join us? Because we are not looking to collect spectators. We are looking to invite all of you to lean in and help us accomplish the task for which we believe God has commissioned us and other believers around this world. So this is what we are about. And over the course of the month, we're going to tease this out. But a couple of things I want to focus on. First, our primary purpose as a church is to make disciples. We'll go into what we mean by that in a few minutes. We'll define and, and kind of explain what that term means. But one question might be, well, well, why that? Why not to worship God and to glorify him? Why not to, to spread the gospel? All of those are good things. But my short answer for why making disciples is our main focus as a church is because that was Jesus' main focus. That's what Jesus did in preparation for him knowing he wasn't going to be on this planet forever he specifically invested in a smaller group of individuals, poured his life into them so that when he went to go be with the Father, the ministry that he began was perpetuated. Secondly, it was the, the thing that he commissioned his followers to do was to make more disciples. You guys all know Matthew 28, right? Can we throw that up on the board? <clears throat> this is the Great Commission. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, don't worry, I'm still with you to the ends of the ages. I'm not leaving you as orphans. But now go and do what I have been doing. So since Jesus was about it, that's what we are going to be about, making disciples. The other, the other thing that we need to ask is, well, okay, how do we go about doing this, right? It's, it's not enough to just say we want to make disciples. That's a great thought. But how do we actually do that? What I, can we throw our purpose statement back up for a moment? What I love about this statement is it not only declares very clearly what we are about, the purpose for which we gather, which is to make disciples, but it also identifies the process by which we begin to help raise up disciples. And that is namely that we would be growing in our relationship with God, that we would be doing life with one another, life on life, and that we would begin to give of ourselves and serve in some capacity, whether here in this church or beyond the walls of this place. Because as we grow, a disciple is somebody who is growing in their relationship with God, loving him, Grown in the relationship with other people, loving one another, and, and serving, loving our neighbors, moving towards them. And so if that's what it meant for a disciple there and then, that's what it means to be a disciple here and now. So those are the criteria. Those are the things that we look at. That's the process by which all of us are being discipled. Does this make sense? If not, sorry. <laughs> now, this is what Jesus was about. This is what we are going to be about. But what does it mean to be a disciple? What does that term mean? Because that's something that's, it's almost Christianese. It's something we throw around. What does that actually mean? That's what we're going to explore today. 
If you're following along, a disciple in your notes, a disciple is a student or an apprentice. I, I prefer that term apprentice over student because when we think student, what do we think, Kelly? Classroom. Exactly. We're sitting. And by the way, gold star for sitting in the front. Well done, young man. All right. In the spitting section, I understand this is a little close even for Charlie and Jeannie to sit here. Todd and Jen, well done. I appreciate you being close. I'm not feeling so so left alone. I know the back of the bus is always way cooler and all that. Love you too back there. There's plenty of Shekinah Holy Spirit for everybody. But when we think student, we think classroom. We think rote knowledge. You just, you know, the teacher says something, we write it down, regurgitate it on the test, and we're good. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about being a disciple. An apprentice is a better term even than that. Because at the end of the day, to be a disciple was not simply to fill your head with knowledge and information. It was about experiencing transformation. And in order to do that, you needed to be trained holistically in every area of your life, not just intellectually. It was about living it out. This is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus led his disciples. And he specifically was going after disciples, apprentices, not simply students who would be able to understand everything in this book and be able to regurgitate it, but it made no difference in their hearts. So if Jesus was about making disciples, and it would probably be helpful for us to understand what that role looked like in the day and age where he was calling people to be discipled to him. So this is just going to be a real quick crash course. Hopefully this will be a review for some of you because we've talked about it before. But this is a quick crash course on what discipleship looked like in the first century AD in Palestine. Can we throw that up on the board there for a moment? So the discipleship track in Jesus's day, when you were six years old is when you would begin. You would be sent to the synagogue to something called Bet Sefer which meant the house of the book. And in Bet Sefer, from ages 6 to ages 10, you would study the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. But it just means the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. They would study it. They would read it over and over. They would talk to the rabbi about what it meant. They would be asked questions about it. And ultimately, the goal was by the age of 10 years old to have the first five books of the Bible memorized, hidden in their hearts and their minds. Now, we go, that's crazy. I can't get my kid to memorize my phone number in case they get lost or our address. But this was a different day and age when they, it was much more of an oral culture where memorization was expected. They didn't have Fortnite. They had Bet Sefer, right? Once you were 10 years old, the, the cream of the crop would then be sent to Bet Talmud. And from ages 10 to 14, a student who was part of Bet Talmud, which is the house of learning, would go on to study the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, which is the Old Testament. What we understand as the Old Testament. They would study and memorize and, and wrestle with all of that. They would talk to the rabbi about, well, what did, what did he mean when he said this? And they would have a conversation. Well, this rabbi believes it means this, and this rabbi believes it means this. They would explore and hide the entire Hebrew scripture in their hearts. This was, this was big deal. And by the time they were 14, the best of the best of the best would have this memorized. And, they, and if you ask them a question, they'd be able to di- dialogue about it. Now, at that point, the vast majority of Hebrew children would 
graduate out of their theological training and they would go back home and they would be apprenticed to their, their parents in whatever the family business is, whether that be, if, if dad was a fisherman, you're going to go out and be a fisherman yourself. If dad was a carpenter, you're going to be a carpenter yourself. If dad was in agriculture, you're going to be a farmer yourself. That's typically how, what would happen for the vast majority of Hebrew children. But for the best of the best of the best, the ones that really got it, the ones that honestly were on the track to becoming rabbis themselves, they would go and present themselves to a rabbi, one that they respected, one whom they would want to be more like. And they would say, I would like to be your Talmudin. I would like to be your disciple. And the rabbi wouldn't just say, well, well, then fine, you're my disciple. He would begin to grill this child. He would ask question after question after question. Things like, how many times does the word worship come up in the book of Genesis? And the kid from memory would have to think about it and answer the question. And the rabbi would either... It was either right or wrong. I mean, this is like SAT or GMAT on steroids. And they would grill these children. And then the rabbi, if he saw this kid, and when this kid has the ability to be a rabbi himself, he's got what it takes, then the rabbi would speak the words that this child was longing to hear. Come, follow me. Those three words were an invitation to discipleship was an invitation to something far deeper than just book knowledge. When that disciple was invited into that apprenticeship to a rabbi, there were three goals that he carried with him into that relationship. Goal number one, that he would be with his rabbi. You see, discipleship was more than just going and sitting in a classroom for a couple hours, three times a week. Discipleship was 24-7. That kid, that disciple would move in and live with the rabbi. When the rabbi ate, he would eat. When the rabbi got up and did his prayers, he would get up and do his prayers. When the rabbi walked to the temple to go worship, he would walk with the rabbi to the temple to go worship. When the rabbi studied God's word, he would study God's word right alongside the rabbi. There was a staying in, in the Hebrew culture. It was a blessing to disciples. And that blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The meaning of which was, may you walk so closely behind your rabbi that the very dust that his sandals kick up would stick to you. That's the kind of close following of this rabbi that you would be expected and hope to do. But simply being with your rabbi was not the the goal. It was not the end in and of itself. It was simply a means to an end. The second goal, and really the end of being discipled to your rabbi, was that you would become more like your rabbi. As you walked with him, you would pick stuff up. You would do what the rabbi was doing. If the rabbi came to a puddle and it was there and he skirted around the puddle, then when you came to the puddle, you too would skirt around it. If the rabbi jumped over the puddle, I know, Callan, I totally agree. He's going to jump over the puddle too. You do what your rabbi does. As your rabbi is walking through the, the, the courts and there's somebody there, 
and your rabbi greets that person, then you greet that person as well. If the rabbi turns the eye and just walks right past. I remember when I was in Israel in the court of the, the, the Muslim court or the Muslim quarter. And I watched as a, a Jewish man walked through, holding onto the shoulder of another man, walked through the Muslim quarter with his hands over his eyes so that he would not look upon the great unwashed. And I go, one, I, I had a hard time. There, there's, there's reasons for that. I don't think they're good, but whatever. But as he was doing it, a, a disciple would do exactly the same thing. If, I, if my rabbi won't even look upon these people, then I will not look, look upon them. In everything, that disciple was trying to become a carbon copy of his rabbi. The third goal of discipleship. And this is the long-term goal. Because as you are with your rabbi, as you're copying what you see your rabbi doing, it becomes ingrained. So that one day when your rabbi goes to be with the Lord and you're left, you are all of a sudden equipped because you are now capable of doing what your rabbi did, not because you're pretending to be a rabbi, but because your life has been shaped by your proximity to your rabbi. So the third goal is to do what your rabbi did. When people ask you a theological question, without even thinking, you answer with the same mindset that your rabbi had, with the same answer that he might have given. The way you interact with people is shaped by the way your rabbi did before you. In ev- for all intents and purposes, you have become just like your rabbi. And you do the very things that your rabbi did. Jesus, when he called his disciples, he called them to follow him, right? And when he did that, they sought to become more and more like him. And in fact, he said this to his disciples. Can we put uh, Luke 14 up there for a moment? Um, John 14, here it is. Very truly, I tell you, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You will be doing even greater things, but you will do the things that I have been doing. Or remember, go back to the Great Commission. Jesus, who had been a disciple maker, now looks at his disciples and says, now go do what I've been doing. Go make more disciples. Baptize them in my name and in the Father's name and the Holy Spirit's name and teach them to obey everything I've taught you to obey. Now pass this yoke of teaching on to them. So we, as his disciples, are called to do what he did. Now, a couple of clarifications on discipleship. First off, discipleship is not optional. There's this, there's this belief kind of putzing around the church that believing in Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus are two different levels of commitment. That that you all start out as a believer, but you have to kind of opt into the special forces, which is discipleship, right? Which is absolutely categorically not biblical at all. Because if you read the New Testament, 269 times the word disciple is used. Did I skip that one? I'll come back to that one. 
269 times in the New Testament, the word disciple is used while the word believer only shows up twice and the word Christian only shows up three times. Discipleship was everything. Discipleship was the, was the invitation that Jesus gave. And notice this. Jesus, we ask ourselves, well, why did this happen? Why have we focused so much energy on becoming a believer when in reality the invitation is discipleship? I believe this is why. Within the church, in the modern church, we have placed such a strong emphasis on praying a prayer that we have given the belief that simply having intellectual assent that Jesus is Lord and he died for my sins is the finish line as opposed to the starting line of a lifetime of walking with Jesus. And I would point out to you that Jesus never once said, hey, pray this prayer. What was his invitation? Follow me. Remember, That's an invitation to become his disciple. And time after time after time to people you would have never expected, tax collectors, follow me. They left everything to follow him. That's how big a deal this was. To fishermen who had flunked out of of, of Bet Talmud, had never become a disciple of somebody. Follow me. They left their father. They left their nets. They left their career to follow him. We oftentimes may wonder, well, why would they do that? Because this was that big a deal in that culture. And suddenly the the also-rans have a chance to be a disciple. He did it to the rich young ruler. Follow me. But this young guy decided that his wealth had such a strong grip on his heart that he couldn't say yes because this was competing with him to follow Jesus. And Let me just think about that for a while. Follow me is the invitation. My point here is that every single one of us has been invited to follow Jesus. This is a broad invitation. But the invitation is not simply to intellectually believe that he is God and just rest in that. As if somehow him being our savior and him being our Lord can be separated. They are one and the same thing. And if we are resting in him, if we believe in him, then we are called to follow him to the best of our ability. But this brings us to the second clarification we need to make. And that discipleship is not a momentary thing. It is a lifelong process. When somebody says, follow me, and you take the first step, you have not completed that process. You've simply begun the journey. And that journey of following our Lord and our Savior so that we can be with him, become like him, so that we can somehow begin to do what he did, that's our goal. We want to become like Christ. And so this is a lifelong journey. And if you have just come back to church for the first time in 20 years, or you have been following Jesus faithfully and haven't missed more than like a week or two in a row your entire life for the last 70 years. Merv, I'm looking at you. You are still in process. Regardless of where you are in this journey, we are all in process. But our goal is to become shaped by our proximity to our Lord so that we become more like our Lord. I love the fact that in the early church, um, 
people would kind of derogatorily call believers in Jesus Christ Christians. It was a derogatory put down, oh, you little Christ. And they began to embrace that term as, as a badge. Yes, that's exactly what we want to be. We want to be just like Christ. We want to become incarnationally his representations on this earth. So yes, we are Christians. We are little Christs in the making. They took a curse and turned it into a prayer of God, help me to become more like your son, Jesus, as I follow him, as I submit every moment of every day to him. So following Jesus and becoming his disciple is not optional, nor is it momentary. It is a lifelong process that will not be completed. We will not be just like Christ this side of the grave. So what do we do? We wake up each morning and we commit ourselves again for that day. I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to, Holy Spirit, just help me as I spend a little bit of time in your word. God, help me as I go about my business. Help me as I drive to work to represent you. Help me as I interact with my fellow students to represent you. Show me how you would respond and help me. God, forgive me because I know that I just bit that person's head off. Give me grace. I thank you for your grace because we live in a never-ending sea of grace. That is the foundation of our relationship so we don't have to somehow earn it back. If we screw up, it's not like we get, we get cut off and we're no longer his disciple. We are in process and we will screw up and that is okay. So don't get overwhelmed and don't get discouraged and don't buy into the lies of the enemy that you've screwed up too much and God's done with you because that's a lie from the pit of hell. So rest in the invitation. Follow me. Walk with me. Become more like me so that ultimately you can represent me to your neighbors, in your workplace, at your school. That sounds great. Well, what does this actually look like in reality in the 21st century? How do we live as disciples of Jesus Christ? and how do we somehow make more disciples of Jesus as we imperfect people are in process? Because I, I need to tell you, we are not looking to make disciples of ourselves. Jeff and I are not hoping that you become disciples of Jeff and Eric. We're not looking to make little Darlene's or little Diane's. We want to become disciples of Jesus. That's who we're following. That is who we want to become more like. But we do it with one another. We, we follow him together. And so I, I remember probably about 15 years ago, I got an opportunity to sit down with a guy who had been discipling people probably twice as long as I'd been on the planet. It was not what he did for a living. It's what he did because he was called to do it. And he just leaned into it. This was his vocation, not his occupation. And I said, what, what does discipleship mean to you? What does that look like? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, well, first it begins with me remembering that I am first and foremost a disciple before I'm ever a discipler. So I follow my Lord. I keep my eyes on him. And from time to time as I follow him, the Holy Spirit will tap me on the shoulder, point to somebody and say, that one. So then I move towards that person. I said, hey, 
You want to walk with me? And I give them an invitation to walk with me. And when they say yes, when they opt in, what they're wrestling through in their life, we process through together. And what I'm processing through in my life, I invite them into that. I don't pretend to have it all together. But I'll tell you, it's not a curriculum, it's a relationship. If I'm, if I'm going to visit somebody in the hospital, I invite them to come along. Whether they can or cannot, they're invited. And we follow Jesus together. Because again, we're being discipled to him. Now, some seasons of life, our paths diverge and they go their way and I continue to follow Jesus. In other seasons of life, God brings our paths back together and we keep walking together. But regardless of whether I have somebody walking with me or not in that sort of a relationship, I keep my eyes firmly fixed on Jesus because, again, I am first and foremost a disciple before, I ever, before I'm ever a discipler. And if I'm not following him, I have nothing to offer of any lasting value. I love that picture because it totally radically changes my idea of what discipleship is. I used to think that discipleship was a curriculum. And in order to hand on the curriculum, you need to know it. And it's about intellectual stuff. It's about classroom stuff. And the way he described it was more as a relationship, life on life, iron sharpening iron. And it's actually what I see throughout scripture. I hear Paul saying, hey, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the invitation. Follow me as I keep my eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Only emulate my life as I emulate him. Or as he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, we loved you guys so much that we didn't just share the gospel with you, but our very lives as well. That to me, describes discipleship. It's doing life together as we pursue Christ together. Is this making sense? So how, what does this look like here in this church? How do we begin to live out our calling to make disciples here at the church? Well, specifically, I've, I've talked to every single one of our staff members and I say, hey guys, this is our big rock. This is what we are about. And so everything that we do, and in the last couple of years, we have been pruning a lot of ministry stuff because everything that we do will either underline or undermine our call to make disciples. So there are tons of really good things. But if they distract us from the main thing, then we're not going to do them. Now, we love stuff like the, the self-defense class and the cooking in the kitchen and things like that that go on because these are opportunities for relationship and life on life. Sharing of, I mean, when we say, hey, we want you to use the gifts that God has given you, what a great example of that. But our end goal is never, we want you to be able to beat somebody up if they attack you in a dark alley. We want you to rest in who you are, know who you are value who you are, and ultimately we want to pursue Jesus together. That's our primary goal. And if that were to get in the way, then we would have to say, sorry, we can't do that right now because we're focusing here, but we did not feel that when this opportunity came up. So, hey, protect away. Um, we, we are about making disciples. And I just said, hey, we need to make sure everything is going in the same direction. So we've, we've cut really deep and we've said no to a lot of really good ministry so that we could say yes to the ones that really help us go deep. Namely, that we're growing in our relationship with God, growing in relationship with one another, life groups, 
It's the primary way. And so a lot of people are like, hey, I want to do a Bible study on this book of the Bible. I want to do a Bible study on this book of the Bible. I want to do... And we're like, no, life groups is how we're going to express that here. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But this is what we're going to be about. And we do this so that we can say, focus on the main thing. Secondly, specifically here at the church, I've looked at every single one of our leaders, whether they're on staff or they're volunteers like our life group leaders. And I have challenged every single one of them. And Jeff has done the same thing. And we continue to repeat this. And so right now, if you're in any sort of leadership, I'm talking directly to you. Do not simply do the good things that you are doing and think that that is enough. Look and pray for opportunities to invite somebody to come alongside of you so that you can give away some of the responsibility. And the fruit of that is, Pete, who are you raising up? I don't want you to just go find people who have been leading worship forever. I want you to find people who are worship leaders in utero and invest in them. Bring the latent gifts out of them. And this morning, we had two of our young adults who are beginning to help lead in worship, walking with him, not to become carbon copies of Pete. We've already got Pete. That's all we need was one Pete. But I want a Cheyenne. I want a Josh who brings out of the, the storehouse of the gifts that God has laid in them that to be able to worship because we no, have no idea how God can use them. But we're so excited that God is using them and that we have the opportunity to shape and mold them. And they're just a couple of dozens of young adults that God has given us that opportunity to invite there. This year, you got a chance to see a couple of, of the people from our church, namely Greg Barone and, and Jean Getz, who are part of our community that we just spent time cultivating. And you only saw the end product. You saw the messages that they delivered in the month of August. But we were walking with them for six months plus prior to that. Jeff particularly was invested in them. And, and we were, here's the message notes from this week so you can see how we go about it. In over six months, they were crafting and working through this so that when you finally saw them on stage, that was the culmination of a very long season of discipleship. We have three interns that began this year. They're from our young adults crew that are pouring themselves into loving our students and our children. We have two that are specifically focused on our children across the street in Ashley, who you meet out there every week at the, at the table, as well as um, Nathan Miramontes. Both of them are pouring into our kids. And then we have Josh, who is on drums, who's our intern to the junior hires. And it is his job to pour in and love on those junior hires as we begin to develop that ministry. Because we have a lot of kids who are transitioning into that age group. And we specifically wanted to... Listen, our interns don't get us coffee. That's not their job. We're not discipling them to be servants in the sense that they do nothing and are given no coffee. They're being discipled in the sense that we're giving them heavy responsibility and walking with them as they grapple with that. That's how we do internship. That's how we do discipleship. And so to all of you, our commitment is not that we would simply put on a really good production on a Sunday. And, and entertain you with the very best worship and the very best teaching where I'm coming up with better jokes every week to try to outdo it. That's not our goal. Our goal is simply to create space for all of you to get out of your chairs and join us in ministry because it is our ardent belief that all of you have been called to represent your Lord and your Savior. All of us have been called into ministry in one capacity or another. 
Over the next couple of months, we're going to explore perhaps more individually what that calling might be on your life at whatever stage of life you're in. That, that's just a little preview we'll talk more about in the coming weeks. But that's where we're going over February, March, and April is how has God specifically developed you, created you, called you to join him in this process of representing him. It is our job to create space and to encourage and equip you to do that very thing. That's what we're going to be about. And so in the same way that we got the chance to commission a few people who have been called by God to go and be the church down in Costa Rica, not like Jesus isn't already down there, but to go join him in what he's doing there, this morning I want to commission you to what God is calling you to do here in Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, wherever it is you happen to call home, whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in in this season of life, I want to commission you as a disciple of Jesus to be open to him inviting you to play a greater role in representing him and discipling others. So if you bow your heads, I'm going to invite the worship team forward. Father God, I thank you that you use imperfect vessels like us to pour out your perfect love. I thank you that you love us in spite of our imperfections. And I thank you that you use us in spite of our imperfections. I pray that you would get the glory as we follow you, do life with you, learn to recognize your voice apart from all the other voices of this world. And I pray that you would give us, that you would fill us up so that any ministry that we do, any interaction we have would be a product of the overflow of our hearts, not out of the dregs of it. Father, we pray that we would be able to find our identity in you so that the things that we do would be a response to it, not an attempt to earn it. Would you give us the eyes to see the opportunities around us? Would you give us a sensitivity of heart to know who to invite to walk with us that we would do life on life? But may we never forget that before we are ever disciples, we are disciples ourselves. Jesus, we want you to be not only our Savior, we want you to be our Lord. So Jesus, lead on. We will follow. May you light the way. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. I know there's probably a lot of things you